Hello, good afternoon. We'll be starting the webinar in a few minutes just to let everyone else arrive. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. And welcome to this webinar on business action on climate change, navigating carbon reduction pathways. I'm Anna Watson, Head of Conference Production at Climate Action. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to welcome so many listeners to this afternoon's webinar. Please be aware that this session is being recorded and will be made available shortly after the webinar is complete. Just to let you know a little bit more about climate action, for the last eight years we've worked in a unique partnership with the UN Environment Programme to develop their official publication and events in order to establish partnerships between state and non-state actors to accelerate green economic growth. Today's webinar is the third in our series that addresses key climate change related topics in the run-up to the Sustainable Innovation Forum, taking place on the 7th and 8th of December in Paris during COP21, officially endorsed by the French government and taking place at Stade de France. Over the last five years, the forum has become the largest business-focused side event at the COP. This year, we expect to welcome 750 delegates and 80 speakers across the two-day event. Today's webinar is run in conjunction with Carbon Trade Exchange, a key supporter of the Sustainable Innovation Forum. Which brings me on to the topic of today's webinar, how best can businesses take action on climate change by engaging in the evolving global carbon markets? CDP's latest report on carbon pricing in the corporate world has revealed that the number of companies worldwide using internal carbon pricing for investment decisions has tripled to 437 in the last year and will surpass 1,000 in the next two years. Companies in Asia Pacific have been the most enthusiastic new adopters and prices generally range between $20 and $60 a tonne. This reflects the general flurry of activity around carbon markets being witnessed in the run-up to COP21, as stronger regulation on climate change is anticipated to impact business-as-usual operations. Other examples include China announcing that a national carbon market will come into effect in 2017, and last week at New York Climate Week, the UNFCCC revealed the Climate Neutral Now campaign, aiming to simplify the way in which businesses, governments and individuals can offset carbon emissions. As these new voluntary and mandatory markets emerge, however, combining the opportunities and expectations they represent into CSR strategies can seem very complex, especially when navigating different business requirements across global supply chains. Today we welcome complimentary speakers from a carbon trading platform and a global financier to help demystify this process, focusing on the following questions. How best can organisations develop strategies to effectively engage in carbon markets? Which policies are most likely to impact private sector decisions around carbon pricing? 
And how can project financiers and technology developers work with businesses to meet commitments around carbon reduction? I'm very happy to welcome Wayne Shutt, Chairman and Founder of Carbon Trade Exchange, who will share with us the opportunities available to businesses as they take the journey towards carbon neutrality. Bianca Sylvester, Consultant to the Climate, Finance and Carbon Unit of the World Bank, will then address some of the larger issues around current market disparities and the possibility of creating a globally networked carbon market. Sadly, Megan Flynn, Head of Environment and Carbon Strategy at Qantas, has at the very last minute been unable to join us as she has had to take an unexpected flight, so is currently in the air, I assume on a Qantas flight. Wayne, however, has kindly agreed to present Megan's slides so that it will still cover the Qantas case study. If anyone has any specific questions for Megan, they can email them through to me during the webinar and I will forward these to Megan for her comment. Each speaker will take a few minutes to present their views, following which we will take questions from our listeners. You can submit your questions via Twitter using hashtag SIF15 or using the question box on the GoToWebinar bar to the right of your screen. I hope that by the end of this webinar, the navigating the emerging carbon reduction landscape will feel much less daunting and the opportunities available to businesses will be abundantly clear. I shall now hand over to our first speaker, Wayne Sharp, Chairman and Founder of Carbon Trade Exchange. Just one moment, Wayne. I'll just give you Thanks, Anna. Let me just give you control of the screen. There you go, Wayne. The floor is yours. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud and clear. Fantastic. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just as a quick background, uh, I uh, established about 25 years ago a global company not in the environmental sector, uh, and at our peak we had 136 offices in 20 countries. Uh, and during my travels, it became very obvious to me that business and mankind in general were uh, impacting the environment. And I made a decision uh, when I started studying this issue about 15 years ago that I wanted to uh, migrate myself away from that commercial enterprise and focus on something that would help solve climate change using the skill sets I derived from that global business, uh, uh, in, in, which was also an exchange company for business. Um, so, okay. Just waiting for my slides to move. <laughs> <laughs> if you click or press across, Wayne, that should be okay. Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um. One of the first things I realised is that everyone in business is in business because they want to make a profit and they have an obligation to their shareholders particularly and to their organisation to do so. So the first thing we want to do, as far as I'm concerned, is work out what the benefits are for a business to take action on climate change and specifically on carbon. Uh, and that means increasing market share, employee retention, uh, mitigate future risks as carbon price increases and regulation starts to filter down through uh, through the supply chains. Uh, prepare for increased regulation that may impact you directly or indirectly uh, and more importantly uh, gaining competitive edge by being part of a carbon neutral supply chain. The reality is that, that, that whether you're at the top of the supply chain or somewhere in that supply chain, at some point you're going to be required to report your carbon footprint uh, from a commercial perspective whether you have a regulatory obligation or not. Uh, and increasingly, uh, people who are looking to work for organisations are concerned about what their corporate social responsibility and what actions they're actually taking uh, in order to get a better outcome for the planet in general. Okay, just having a slight delay, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, so, 
large companies all over the world are taking action. Most of you probably already know this. And many of those companies have said that they will insist that their supply chain uh, removes carbon or its carbon impact from their footprint. Large part of that reason, the reason for that is not only because of social responsibility, but also because uh, the reality is they want to they want to see that their footprint is reduced because their supply chain has reduced its. So how we see that uh, that this should take place very simply is that you should measure your carbon footprint and, and basically create a baseline. Um, and that means that you know what carbon pricing is within your business. And sorry, the bottom part of that, uh, that slide is, is not uh, visual. Um, from there, you know what the price of carbon is within your business and then you can offset those emissions uh, and retire the carbon credits and use that then as a basis for reducing and optimising your baseline and, and basically the end result is that you have a position that you can communicate to the market in general. And the market, by that we mean your shareholders, uh, but also your other stakeholders, your clients and your, uh, your own uh, uh, supply chain upwards or downwards. Uh, the most important thing is that the more you talk about it, the more it will have collectively on, on the environment. And obviously, uh, uh, from our point of view, what we want to do is continue to act as a central resource for the buyers and sellers to come together. Now, of course, the biggest question is, well, where do these credits come from? And what does that, uh, what does that really mean? Well, we already have clients in over 25 countries. Uh, it is a global platform. And the way the credits are uh, brought onto the exchange is only through legitimate third-party registries. The process for credit origination is laid down in exactly the same format as the UNFCCC does uh, in the CDM process. So the bottom line is that all of these international credit standards, uh, such as VCS, Gold Standard and many others uh, that we, we deal with, are internationally recognised. And the only credit listed on Carbon Trade Exchange are ones that are in a registry which is electronically linked to the exchange platform that have gone through that rigid and very detailed uh, assessment process which is all done by third parties, not by Carbon Trade Exchange. We do not own those credits. They are listed on the exchange but still owned by the person who owned them originally or originated them. Uh, and then those credits, uh, uh, when they're sold, then they're transferred to the person who buys them. Obviously on the buy side, uh, then what we're looking for there is to make sure that the, the seller does in fact get paid. So all of our buyers are in funds, so when they purchase, those funds are in an escrow account uh, and that's immediately transferred to the seller on, on completion of the transaction. So the reality is that what Carbon Trade Exchange was set up to do and what I conceived right from the outset is that we would act like a stock exchange for carbon credits. So in the stock exchange, you would have the brokers or direct trading for major corporations, perhaps. But the reality is that most of the most of this is not. We don't own those credits. What we're doing is acting as the the financial intermediary or the centralised exchange to facilitate the process. Uh, the carbon credits, as I said, are internationally recognised standards. Uh, the registries use unique serial numbers, so there is no possibility of credits being double sold or not legitimately issued. This is a really important part because the last thing you want to do is if you take action as a company, you don't want to have your action discredited by finding out later that credits weren't legitimate or that they weren't actually uh, at the same level as what you thought they were. Uh, so all of them, in our case, are uh, uh, issued, verified and held in secure registries and traded electronically via those exclusive links. Now, the reason I thought that was important is because I want to make it easy. So in our process, what we do, and this screen is not perfectly clear, but it gives you a basic concept that you can do a search and the search functionality allows you to determine what vintage it is that you're searching for, what credit standard, what project type and the geography, the region and the country. And what that means is that you can find exactly what you want. There are 560,000 search variable combinations on the platform uh, with uh, over a thousand projects listed uh, in just about every credit standard that you could possibly imagine. 
Um, so what this really means for, for on the buy side client is that you can find everything you need to know. The information button, which is uh, which is on the side of the platform uh, beside each listing, uh, allows you to go to the original documentation. Now I felt this was really important because <clears throat> most of the people involved in, in purchasing all these offsets are not and should not need to be experts in this market. What they should be able to do is build a portfolio of credits very easily with information that's ready available and electronically available, including every single document that was ever produced in relation to issuance or ongoing monitoring of that particular uh, credits that have been issued. Um, in the in the CTX platform, I wanted it to be 24-7. Uh, the first time I went to Carbon Expo, to me it was like a modern day medieval market with everyone bringing their chickens and goats. And I thought, what about using the internet? Why don't we use a, 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 basically a global platform for distribution of the information so that people can trade anywhere in the world? Uh, and so all of these things that we've set up, and I won't go into this in too much more detail, uh, are all designed to make it easy for business to do a transaction and easy for the originators to sell credits into the market because the only cost is when they do a transaction, not, uh, when, they, uh, not when they actually list the credits for sale. Um, a great case study, and I, I really love this case study, Danske Bank. Just to give you a very quick snapshot, 3.6 million retail customers uh, across Europe, uh, 329 branches in 15 countries, 19,000 employees, 2.2 billion euros in profit. Now it's a it's a fair-sized organisation by most standards. So in 2007, they became, and I know this is a little dated, but I think the story is relevant. Uh, they became carbon new a cost of 500,000 euros. Two years later, by measuring the carbon footprint in their business, they were able to isolate the cost centres and the reductions that they could get. They reduced their carbon footprint by 40%, which of course means they reduced their cost of offsetting from 500,000 down to around 300,000 uh, euros. More importantly, they were able to get reductions across multiple cost centres, printing, document storage, transport, etc and they generated 1.5 million euros a year permanently of annual savings. So these are sustainable bottom line profits that they generated by costing carbon in their business in the first place. Uh, now they, they targeted and successfully achieved a further 60% reduction uh, by uh, 2012. <clears throat> to put that in, in where those cost centres came from, electricity, heat, travelling, air, paper use, and, and obviously there were subsectors within this, but these were the main sections uh, that they found. Now, of course, this is a service industry and not everyone's in that, but it's a great example that you can actually generate a lot of additional profits in your business if you know where the losses are. And most carbon emissions uh, that, are, that are excessive are actually produced by wastage and inefficiency. Qantas is another great example. They state, they state that they wish to be an industry leader in their sector and by any stretch of the imagination they are. They've had a massive success. The carbon neutral, uh, they've, they've offset all their growth, carbon neutrality, with, uh, through CTX till 2020. Uh, they've cut their emissions as a result of focusing on this section uh, and they've reduced their costs also. So. Manage, reduce, and offset uh, is their is their basically their mantra. They also run the world's most successful airline offset program, and the reason for that is by taking action themselves, they have the moral high ground to ensure that their customers feel they should take action as well, uh, and that provides them with an innovative customer offset program, uh, and basically. They're about to expand this program even further to allow businesses to offset themselves outside of in their flight portfolio but into the, the rest of their business as well. <clears throat> so these type of innovations, when you take action, you have the ability to push yourself out amongst your own clients. Now, when I first looked at going to America, people said, well, why would you go there? 50% of people don't believe in climate change. I said, well, fantastic. I'll sell to the other half. Um, so the reality is a lot of people do care. 
what we were also able to do is assist you with the technology, solutions and or uh, organisations that can provide you with carbon footprint analysis. You can, in many cases, uh, either licence or purchase the software and do these yourselves. In most cases, some other than manufacturing sectors and some other production facilities, you can get this from your financial data. So it's not a complex process, it's not rocket science. Uh, so I think the important thing for me is this, in business we have an obligation to the ecosystem, the global community and the other businesses which we do business with. Our customers, which is the, the, the global uh, uh, retail community in general, uh, are saying we need to act. We shouldn't wait for government to tell us what to do, we are in charge of our business, we can act without their approval and we can control our environment. We can make our supply chain carbon neutral, make ourselves more profitable and make the planet more efficient and more secure for our future. Perfect. Thank and you so much, Wayne. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll just take the, uh, the controls back from you. That was great. Thank you, Wayne. One moment, whilst I just um, unmute Bianca. Thank you very much, Anna. I'll just hand the controls to you as well. There you go. Thank you, Bianca. The floor is yours. I'll quickly move it so we can... Okay. I'll quickly move it so we can get away from that terrible photo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's... Uh, not sure if the controls are working. Well, if you click or press across, there you go. Oh, there we go. Uh, so, hi everyone. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining this webinar. I'm uh, very happy to be joining uh, an all Aussie lineup today um, with Wayne and the case study on Qantas. So, uh, it's it's great to to join that lineup. Um, Anna mentioned that uh, Wayne's presentation and my presentation are quite complementary, and, and uh, I think where I think Wayne um, did a great job of uh, explaining um, carbon offsetting in the voluntary carbon market, and I, I really wanted to focus uh, my uh, speaking time on the compliance market, um, and in particular what uh, we at the World Bank uh, see in terms of uh, compliance markets developing around the world. Uh, and what uh, and the heterogeneity and regulatory fragmentation that we're starting to see emerge uh, in the absence of a top-down framework like the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, I also wanted to talk about um, what this regulatory fragmentation uh, could mean for linking across jurisdictions uh, in the future, um, which is, I, I guess, uh, could potentially uh, uh, you know, bring opportunities for business that want to uh, gain benefit from the liquidity and scale uh, that a linked international carbon market can, can bring. So uh, the context for this um, is that, as I mentioned, um, around the world in the absence of an international, a top-down international framework like the Kyoto Protocol, uh, many jurisdictions are going ahead themselves and are now designing and implementing ways to mitigate climate change. Uh, this map here shows that we have, at the moment, 62 jurisdictions currently putting a practice up. Uh, and when I say that, I mean these are uh, schemes like emissions trading schemes or carbon taxes. Um, and in 2015, these carbon pricing instruments covered about seven gigatons of CO2 at a value of just under $50 billion, um, which is great news. It's great that, um, you know, without sort of the international certainty and guidance that countries, including uh, developing countries, are, um, you know, going ahead and, and making decisions about how to price carbon and reduce emissions themselves. But since these actions are being done unilaterally, uh, the decisions about the design and implementation of these schemes are very much being driven by countries' own rule books. 
which is which is great in the sense that the unique design and implementation of each scheme um, very much aligns with Liverpool objectives of, of that country. It has also meant uh, that we um, we are coming to a point where there is quite a large amount of regulatory fragmentation that is emerging across jurisdictions, which has made it increasingly complex to be able to track progress across jurisdictions, uh, compare achievements, and link these actions across jurisdictions. And the private sector in particular has indicated that this regulatory fragmentation that we're seeing um, impedes investment, uh, and for those, um, you know, global companies like Qantas uh, very much raises their uh, costs of compliance um, uh, since they have you know, different sort of regulations to be dealing with uh, in, in every jurisdiction that they operate. Uh, the, oh, the heterogeneities that are already present in the market are evident in the price variability that we are already seeing between markets. So we've got a range here, as you can see, of between $1 and $130 for a tonne of carbon. And in many cases, these differences in prices reflect deep policy and institutional differences across jurisdictions. Now, looking at this chart, you would think that this price variability presents tremendous opportunities for business and for market participants if these different systems could link. Um, and if they could take advantage of arbitrage opportunities between these price variations. But as I mentioned, since these difference in prices reflect deep policy and institutional differences across jurisdictions, this presents problems for linking because current approaches to linking aren't set up for handling differences. Uh, this is not the case in other commodity markets. Just to give an example, other markets can handle differences. If you look at the coal markets, there are different prices for coal depending on its quality and depending on where it comes from. Uh, so with that background, uh, at the World Bank, we are exploring, I guess, alternative visions for how linking could work to uh, be able to accommodate differences across jurisdictions. Uh, this slide just sort of outlines uh, the the new approach that we are currently exploring, uh, which we are calling networking. And the slide very much shows how we see networking is offering an alternative to linking. Linking um, in the classic sense has always uh, involved, I guess, jurisdictions coming together to negotiate um, and to make, and in the process of that negotiation, make regulatory modifications to each scheme so that they become more similar and the units between those uh, jurisdictions can then trade on a one-to-one -one basis. Rather than seeking to have this negotiation process which can take a very long time and in, in that time create considerable uncertainty for business about uh, you know, the timing of potential changes to the scheme and what the form and scope of, you know, of their compliance obligations will look like. Rather than seeking to have this negotiation process to harmonize systems, um, networking is about facilitating cross-border trade by recognizing differences between schemes and placing a value on these differences um, in the form of resulting in uh, the, the sort of fungibility of asset classes uh, between jurisdictions, not necessarily on a one-to-one -one basis, but in a way that allows schemes to maintain their original design uh, and whilst still being able to link with integrity across jurisdictions. To be able to achieve this, um, our work program is uh, very much focused on three components, and really the main component is uh, ensuring that there is a transparent, reliable, efficient approach to providing the information needed to understand the differences between systems, be able to compare them, and uh, in the future enable some um, fungibility based on the relative climate change mitigation value of the units that are being traded. Uh, the other component, and so to do this, uh, we are 
helping to, I guess, establish principles and uh, a framework for uh, independent assessments of the climate change mitigation value of different climate actions. Uh, this would be supported by various um, market infrastructure uh, tools, such as an international carbon asset reserve and an international settlement platform um, to, to track cross-border trades um, and provide a possible clearinghouse function. To do all of this, this is obviously um, you know, something that is planned for a long time in the future. Um, and so we are working with a lot of partners to uh, develop the thing around these possible components uh, and explore the options for how they could be, uh, for how an independent assessment framework could be designed and how it could be implemented, for example. And this last slide that I wanted to leave you with is just uh, maps, I guess, the different components of the initiative that we are working on and the many partners that we are working with in the private sector um, as well as um, in the public sector and with governments to uh, develop the key components of the initiative with the end goal of being able to establish a linked international carbon market that um, accepts and recognises differences across jurisdictions. Thanks, Anna. Perfect. Thank you, Bianca. Let me just grab the control of a coffee. Okay, great. Well, thank you so both so much for your presentations. Um, as you mentioned, it's great to get a view from the voluntary market and then also um, from the point of view of the mandatory markets. Um, we've had quite a few questions come through. Um, and it'd be great just to start um, with you, Wayne, um, on a more sort of specific question about the, the Qantas case study. Um, so you mentioned in um, one of your beginning slides, one of the main things that businesses need to do around carbon reduction is to communicate the results. Um, so just wondering, how have Qantas been communicating their carbon neutral aims and um, if other airlines are looking to emulate this? And I've just realized I haven't unmuted you both. Just give me one second <laughs> and I'll get you unmuted and we can get that answered. Hello, Wayne. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Thanks, Anna. No worries. Um, yeah, well, look, uh, I think uh, the first thing is that, that Qantas uh, regularly communicate to all of their, uh, their clients and all of their frequent flyers. Uh, and they're constantly putting out the message of the success of their own program. So the fact of the matter is by taking that action, they've, they've done something very positive. I want to point out, however, that Qantas don't only do voluntary offsetting. They have compliance obligations in four or five markets around the world already, and they're expecting that number to increase. And our objective is to make sure that we can provide them with a technology platform that allows them to do not only their voluntary offsetting but all their compliance obligations as well. So depending on the audience would on how much I would focus on, on our ability to execute on, the, on their compliance obligations for, for international businesses. I think the reality is though that, the, that there's a homogenization starting to happen between those markets. But on the Qantas issue and specifically to that, uh, that question, uh, what Qantas have done is not only push that message out through uh, their own client base, but also to the industry at large. And as a result, uh, Megan, Megan uh, is a regular speaker on events such as this and conferences and so forth because of the fact that they are considered industry leaders in their sector uh, uh, by taking action and then communicating it extraordinarily well. Great, thank you, Wayne. Um, and I also had um, a more specific question uh, for Bianca. Obviously, you're working with um, lots of different partners on sort of moving towards a network carbon market. So, to where are you in terms of timeframes? Is this something that can only really be picked up after decisions have been made at COP21, or could you maybe enlighten us a little bit more about the process of uh, bringing this to market? Sure. I mean, this is obviously uh, a long-term uh, proposal, right? So um, where the Networked Carbon Markets Initiative, this initiative that I was speaking about, fits in within the broader context of the World Bank's um, efforts on carbon pricing is uh, very much builds on, I guess, um, efforts to build readiness and build capacity for carbon pricing, which is something being led by uh, the World Bank's Partnership for Market Readiness Program. 
and it very much builds on efforts um, to address the medium-term needs of the carbon market to not to build on that readiness and capacity platform to scale up um, initiatives that are uh, to scale up carbon pricing systems that um, are already in place. And I guess once once you have a a well-functioning um, system, uh, our initiative um, aims to link it with other initiatives. Uh, so it, it's very much trying to meet the long-term needs of the carbon market, but in saying that, um, it's important that uh, we uh, develop the initiative in a way that is compatible with uh, the outcomes of a uh, future international agreement in Paris. Uh, and so to date, we have very much, um, I guess, been pursuing a technical and analytical work plan um, to develop the thinking and the methodologies and the principles around um, how linking could occur. Uh, but I guess um, it's important for us to have a clearer uh, sense of um, uh, the extent to which a future international agreement will provide clarity on what a future international carbon market will look like so that it is clear for us, um, I guess, how the, the components that we are developing can be compatible with that. Having said that, uh, there are, uh, I guess, alternative uh, visions that are also being explored, not so much by us, but um, there is increasing talk of um, carbon clubs um, that are, you know, potentially alternative governance structures for linking um, that could uh, that could occur uh, outside of the future international agreement and okay. I guess uh, given our objective is is a is a linked international carbon market in the future it would be our hope that we would be able to provide the services and institutions needed for linking within clubs um, between clubs and also within uh, a UN international framework as well See, Anna, if I could just add something to that. I think that there's there's two aspects to linking. One is the technical linking, the ability to trade those credits internationally. And the other one is the linkage wherein you're agreeing on a set of rules that you could migrate credits from one market to another, mm. right? And, that, that, and so we're already providing a certain amount of technical linkage with multiple international markets on one set of screens that enables people to trade them. But in each case, you, you have if you have an obligation or an opportunity to trade in those markets, then that's a commercial opportunity or a, a, a mandatory opportunity under that regulation, depending on which it might be. Uh, if you're a broker, it might be both. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is that the, the linkage, I think, that Bianca is discussing is the possibility of allowing them to migrate the credits with, a, with some sort of a margin ratio between those, those like, no, not that different, I guess, to a currency exchange, where everyone's got their own currency, but it doesn't mean one dollar in one country is worth one dollar in another country. That's right. Yep, that's a good distinction to make. Yeah, thank you for that addition, Wayne. Um, I mean, just whilst um, we're mentioning sort of the different types of credit and being worth things in different countries, um, we had a question um, about sort of the voluntary market. Um, and obviously, credits are now being linked more to low carbon development and um, sort of the SDGs directly. Um, so just wondered, with your experience of trading across different countries and projects, if a particular type of um, a project at the moment is favoured by a particular type of company, do you see patterns emerging within the voluntary market? Um, well, most definitely. Uh, uh, companies that have a higher pr uh, perception prof or profile, if you like, on, on their sustainability uh, tend to uh, be favouring more what I would call charismatic credits, where they have a corporate social responsibility, a biodiversity or some other sort of direct social aspect to those credits in addition to the carbon offset. Uh, and we find that those would generally trade at a premium, but they also get a premium uh, perception in the, in the face of the people that they're being presented to, which is the end client that, 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 that the company is actually dealing with, saying, well, we're carbon neutral and here's how we did it. Um, so I think that uh, having said that, usually what I find is that very few companies don't want to build a portfolio. 
And the reality is that there's always a budgetary constraint. We're in business. We're not just in the business of saving the planet, although it would be great if everyone was, but that the reality is that we're not all in that business. So the what tends to happen is you need a portfolio, you need to buy a volume of a certain type of offset that achieves your neutrality goal and, a and another volume of, of different types of credits. And you also want to uh, probably have different regions. The bigger you are and the more international you are, the more you want them from different parts of the world. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason why the exchange we built was built that way. But pitching, that's not just pitching what we do. The reality is that business should try and, I think, spread their commitment uh, but you know, not just for spreading the love, but also because it provides them with a diversity of different uh, types. Because when you hand this over to your marketing department, you just don't know what will appeal to certain people. Some people want to run out and hug a tree. Other people want to see energy reduction or some other uh, technical uh, or some renewable energy process uh, that they think is more measurable. So you don't want to assume any everyone is going to love the same thing. So what? But what, getting back to that, what we do find gold standard uh, tends to trade at a higher value or VCS with those add-on benefits that are socially responsible ones. Great, thank you for that, Wayne. Um, just to move back to the mandatory markets for a second, we've um, we've had one through about the European um, Emissions Trading Scheme. So obviously, it's the longest established market. However, the effectiveness of the CDM credits um, has drastically reduced. And perhaps if we start with Bianca, it'd be great just to get your sort of opinions around sort of the future operability of the market um, and sort of whether CDM credits can still be effective. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the the EU ETS um, covers two gigatons of CO2. Uh, it remains the single largest carbon market um, in the world, and uh, I guess you know we we did see a dramatic fall in prices um, in the EU ETS in 2008. I think it, European Union allowances fell from about I think it was about 28 euro to maybe about four or five euro, um, but so did the price of every other commodity. So you know that. It would have been completely inconsistent and uh, a not very functioning like market, I guess, if it, it didn't if it didn't fall in line with every other uh, commodity and asset class that that fell at that time. And uh, since then, the um, the prices have uh, have strengthened a bit, as have some other commodities. Um, to address, I guess, some of the concerns with the um, with the structure of the EU ETS, uh, you know, the, there have been um, major structural reforms proposed, and um, some of which have been approved for implementation starting in, in 2019. And I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, um, the EU ETS um, uh, was was very much, uh, you know, a pioneer, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are a lot of in, in sort of being the first uh, such large, such a large mandatory carbon market, really, you know, it was obvious that there were going to be some mistakes made, but there were also uh, many lessons to be learned, and I think we've seen that in the uh, design and implementation of schemes that have followed the EU ETS. So, um, you know, I, I, I am sure that the structural reforms, um, and our view at the World Bank uh, is that the structural reforms in the EU ETS uh, combined with uh, greater clarity at the UN level um, will help to strengthen the market um, and, and increase demand for um, uh, all types of uh, carbon credits, um, including um, those from the Clean Development Mechanism as well. <clears throat> and our comments on that would be that uh, I, I had to speak at a uh, uh, the North American uh, Carbon World Conference uh, some time ago, and I called the uh, Californian market a healthy toddler, and the uh, the uh, European ETS a errant teenager. Um, so <laughs> the reality is that the, the, the markets are still maturing, and of course there are going to be mistakes. The issue really is what are the purpose of these markets is to stick in a carrot. 
but the ultimate aim is to try and drive action in climate change directly through the use of offsets. I mean, the, the allowances issue in some countries, who, who knows whether they're really applying the funds from the sale of their allowances to uh, renewable energy or other projects that are going to save climate change, uh, solve climate change. But at least we know with offsets that is where the funds go. So, so in terms of the CDM, its fundamental mandate, I think, is proven to be accurate by virtue of the fact that the overall offset market globally has continued to sustain and grow. And that is that, 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 that the problem is in the developed world and the solutions are in different parts of the world potentially and therefore you need a credit unit in order to take the money from where it is, where the problem is to where the solution is. And, and the, 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 the issues relating to the CDM offsets really revolve around supply and demand, mm. and and you know so the, the, the point of that is that uh, as said errant teenager trims its hair and starts to mature even further, I would expect that 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 market will actually start to consume more global demand as we would hope all the, the businesses in the, in, in the world will start to take more action and consume demand from both CDM credits and the voluntary market. Okay, great. Thank you, Wayne. Um, the question that we've been receiving through the most and um, I keep having put in front of me is to do with um, the, the COP21 and the impact that it will have on these markets. So, I mean, there was a flurry of INDCs submitted this week, um, several of which didn't mention carbon market mechanisms. And it seems that people are quite uncertain um, of the role that markets will be given within the COP sort of outcomes. Um, I mean, Wayne, you said, obviously, of course, businesses can, um, can lead and um, sort of go carbon neutral on their own. However, obviously the mandatory markets and the regulations that come out will have a huge impact on this. Um, so I just sort of wondered, um, perhaps we could start with you, Wayne, sort of what would be your sort of ultimate outcome of COP21 um, and sort of how you think this would impact the voluntary markets? Sure. Well, look, I think the point is that there's two different parts of this: is carbon regulatory policy and a market aren't necessarily the same thing. I mean, the current Australian government is living proof of that. Um, so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that the the, the the policies I think are going to start to be forced down people's throats if they don't do it. So, in my view, the big economies have said this is what needs to happen. It's what must happen. Uh, you know. And if, if uh, China, America and Europe are saying this is what's going to happen, well, the rest of the world really needs to get on board or they're going to find their, their products carbon taxed at, uh, at the borders, so to speak, uh, in my view. So I think the reality is that we are going to see more legislation. There are multiple countries around the world that have got legislations under creation now. Obviously, all of them are hoping a market will emerge from those legislations. How strong that market will be, or whether there's a secondary market, which is the one the media tends to pay attention to or not, uh, it, it remains to be seen. What really is important is that, is that there's a lot of pressure from business for governments to act. And you know, if we t not every business, of course, not those driven by fossil fuels necessarily, although having said that, some of them are starting to recognise the fact that there's a commercial and financial and environmental imperative uh, that makes some sort of action even on their part uh, mandatory and important. Carbon pricing, the advantage for business is it gives certainty. And, and if businesses start pricing it internally anyway, then what they're doing is future-proofing themselves. So by doing it voluntarily in anticipation of even potential regulation or supply chain demand, they're really just protecting the interests of their own shareholders, in my opinion. So, so I think that the, the overall exposure of COP21 itself and the fact that this is our chance to make a difference finally and uh, at 21, we grow up and leave home. Now we're an adult. So the global carbon markets have to grow up and leave home, don't they? <laughs> I quite agree. <laughs> uh, Bianca, would you like to add anything? Um, sure. I mean, I think 
um, Wayne's point is, is really important, that there is a huge amount of momentum and, I guess, a push for carbon pricing that we're not just seeing um, from governments in terms of them, you know, unilaterally deciding to design and implement carbon pricing systems, but it is also coming from business as well. Um, and I, I guess from the World Bank perspective, what we would like to see at COP21 and in the Paris Agreement is language that recognises carbon pricing mechanisms, um, including cross-border carbon market transactions or trade. Um, and you know, this is important, I guess, for supporting this growing momentum on, on carbon pricing that, that we are seeing. Um, I guess our view is also that um, you know, the absence of strong language on international market architecture wouldn't be a disaster. Um, if, 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 it wouldn't be a disaster if that wasn't in a future international agreement. As long as um, there isn't language in, in, the, in the text that limits the application of, of carbon pricing and, um, and cross-border transactions. So I think the worst case scenario would be very much, um, I guess, something is, is text that impedes the development of carbon markets. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it would be, uh, given the strong momentum that there is from, from business and government, I think we would be very surprised if, if that were um, to be the way that things unfolded. Sure, thanks Bianca. Um, and I mean, so just relating to the point of businesses leading on sort of asking for carbon markets and um, regulation, um, you know, six of the largest fossil fuel companies have sort of quite publicly um, sort of asked for strong regulation on carbon. Um, however, this would sort of make fossil fuel production more sustainable which um, I know to many seems fairly contradictory. Um, I mean, Wayne, do you have a sort of view on sort of these high, highly carbon intensive businesses um, championing this, this mechanism and could that potentially be detrimental to more severe regulation? No, no, because look, obviously they, they have a, a little internal arm wrestle going on between the profit of their business and their, their really their requirement to try and work out and make their business sustainable post the fossil fuel era because the fact of the matter is this is not a renewable source so it must run out at some point and they have to start transitioning so the reality is they have the double benefit a large a large fossil fuel company if they're smart can use the regulation structure then to help provide their own financing mechanism for their renewable energy development so they can train themselves and that and they can do it then at at, you know, at virtually no cost because it's coming out of one pocket and going to the other so i think that that, that the reality is that this is smart business on their part. Whilst we need, what we really need to do, however, is make sure that there's a much larger incentive for the renewable resource energy production uh, going forward. Which is that's where the mandated policy needs to be in place, and quality policy. I think Bianca would agree needs to ensure that the money just doesn't go into the government coffers and pay for more politicians. It actually goes into something that's going to solve climate change. No, I agree. Yes, definitely, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is something um, actually that Wayne mentioned earlier. I think the main thing um, that businesses want right now is certainty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, um, I guess, um, an effort by the six oil and gas companies and, and other companies to finally get some certainty on um, uh, around carbon pricing and um, yeah, the worst thing for them is just sort of this limbo period that we're in right now. So I, I, I guess that's part of where, um, in addition to what Wayne mentioned in terms of the opportunities that the market could present, I think um, there's the added um, sort of thing that they're calling for, which is certainty. Well, in the absence of certainty, it's a clear case for divestment for, for, for strategic investors, Bianca, isn't it? Because you know, you, you, when you're investing, what you want is financial certainty on the future of the organisation and its profitability. So from a purely financial perspective, it makes sense that they must 
require certainty and carbon pricing is going to come, we might as well have it now so we don't have to find everyone saying, I'm getting out of this thing. Right, right. Sure, thank you both. Um, I think we have time for one last question each. Um, so Bianca, I have one about um, sort of China's plan to implement their national carbon market. Um, given that there's existing regional markets, um, do you think that structuring this market um, by 2017 is quite a realistic goal? So how do you see this playing out? Um, look, uh, I, so currently China has um, seven subnational um, uh, carbon trading schemes. Uh, and together, those uh, carbon trading schemes cover uh, about one gigaton of CO2. So it's their substantial markets. Uh, I think it's ambitious to for the government to be implementing a national ATS in 2017. But um, you know, if anyone can do it, China can do it. So uh, hmm. you know, the the original. Um, date that they had planned to sort of, I guess, unify the subnational uh, emissions trading schemes into one was actually in 2016. And, um, you know, I think by pushing it, pushing the implementation date back by one more year, um, I guess, um, you know, means that I guess this is maybe more of a realistic target for them. And I do think it's ambitious, but I think, um, I think uh, it's definitely possible and I think, uh, you know, it's definitely possible for it to um, you know, present many opportunities for, for businesses that would be covered by it as well. Great, thank you Bianca. Um, and finally Wayne, um, what is the key piece of advice that you would give businesses looking to engage in carbon markets? Um, and I guess that's beyond of course utilising carbon trade exchange. <laughs> <laughs> it's a given. Yeah, well, look. I think, I think the important thing is that you don't want to lose sight of what's in it for, for you as an organisation and that is the benefit of being seen as a leader and the benefit of being seen to be socially responsible and having taken uh, quite significant action without being forced to do so. I mean, uh, it, don't assume that consumers or business associates or tr supply chain personnel, people uh, that you're dealing with, don't notice this stuff because of course they do. And, and the reality is that, that you know, every day we're bombarded with, with stories in the media and social media that tell you that, that climate change is happening now. We, it's not like we can wait for the next generation to solve this. So we are the business leaders. We are the political leaders, so-called, in many cases. Uh, we, ha we have an obligation, a requirement, and an opportunity to act today rather than waiting. The, the, the voluntary markets and the compliance markets are homogenising to some degree. I mean, the Californian market, for example, all of the uh, offsets provided into that market are being originated out of voluntary programs through VCS, uh, Climate Action Reserve and American Carbon Registry, which we have exclusive agreements with. Mm. These are these are these are where these programs are starting to homogenise, so that everyone's getting more creative. And like I said, and as exactly as Bianca said before, they learnt from the EU ETS mistakes in California. They probably maybe went a little bit far the other way in terms of over-regulatory structure, perhaps, uh, and that's caused some problems, which the next people get to learn from. So the reality is that, that, that in my view, as a business, there's only one choice. Act now. Do something. Anything is better than nothing, a lot is better than a little bit, and carbon neutrality is really what you should be doing. There's no excuse not to. It costs very little, it's easy to do, and you're in charge. Great, thanks Wayne. I think we should definitely end on that inspirational call to action. Um, so I'd really like to thank um, Wayne Sharp and Bianca Sylvester for joining us for today's webinar. Um, and I will apologise on behalf of Megan for not being able to attend. Thank you, Wayne. It was a shame. Um, and, but yeah, just to let you know that we will email you a link to the online podcast of this webinar. Um, and we look forward to potentially seeing you at the Sustainable Innovation Forum in Paris, uh, where you'll be able to hear more from Wayne. Uh, so please do register at the link below. But thank you, everyone. Have a great day.